This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Under the Bush administration, not only have the civil rights of foreigners been in jeopardy, but also those of U.S. citizens. In his new book, Kafka Comes to America, Fighting for Justice in the War on Terror, a public defender's inside account, our guest today, Stephen T. Wax, interweaves the stories of two men he represented who were caught up in our government's post-9-11 counterterrorism measures and reveals where and how our civil liberties have been eroded in favor of a false security. Wax is in his seventh term as a federal public defender for the District of Oregon. Wax and his team are representing seven men held as enemy combatants in Guantanamo. Stephen Wax, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be with you. Very nice having you with us. How how are things up in Oregon today? Yeah, wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's good to hear. It's drizzling a little. Let's let's keep uh, keep that word going in California. (laughs) Okay, that's that's, that's, (laughs) That's that's why we love you. <laughs> so, uh, how long have you been in Oregon? I know you worked in, in New York for a while. At least I think you did. But, uh, right, uh, I came out twenty five years ago and uh, uh, have been uh, with the Federal Defender's Office ever since. Well, so how is it that uh, you and Oregon got involved in the uh, detainees? What what brought that on? Well, we have to go back to two thousand four uh-huh. when the Supreme Court. Uh, issued the first of its three rebukes to the Bush administration and said that uh, the men in Guantanamo did have a right to file habeas corpus petitions. Uh, There were 50 men following that who filed their own uh, petitions, uh, little handwritten things, that went to the court in Washington, D.C. The court uh, turned to the pro bono lawyers uh, at the Center for Constitutional Rights and in some of the big firms who had been handling the cases uh, of other men before then, and uh, they were just not able to take on any more cases. The court asked my counterpart, federal defender in Washington, if he could handle the 50. He said he could do three. <laughs> and the call then went out to federal defenders around the country to see if any of us could help, and uh, I volunteered the office, and we were officially assigned by the court in Washington. So you, came, you got seven, and then uh, I assume that the other... 40 or so were dispersed around the country to other defenders? Yeah, there were roughly 14 defender offices uh, that ended up handling some cases, and as things uh, shook out, uh, there were probably uh, seven or eight offices that became actively involved. Now, are you working in in concert? Are are your arguments being made uh, in conglomerate? Is, is that the right way to say it? Are you pulling together your resources? Indeed we are. Okay. The Center for Constitutional Rights, a private nonprofit organization in New York City, has been coordinating the efforts by all of the habeas council. Uh, there are quite a few large law firms uh, volunteering their time uh, scattered throughout the country, a number of solo practitioners who are dipping uh, quite deeply into their own pockets to uh, help out as well as the defender offices, and we have uh, you know, electronic communication through uh, you know, password-protected listservs and uh, regular conference calls and try to share, share what we're doing so we're not all reinventing the wheel all the time. Now, one of the defendants that uh, you represented uh, was 
Brandon Mayfield. He lives in Oregon, is that right? Yes, and Brandon is not part of the Guantanamo group. Brandon uh, is the lawyer who had been mistakenly connected to the Madrid train bombings that took place in March 2004. The FBI said that they had a 100% match of one of his fingerprints on a latent print lifted from a bag of unexploded detonators from one of the train stations. It turned out they were 100% wrong. Yeah. And he have a he was a his wife was Egyptian or Egyptian descent and he was he a convert to to um Islam? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Brandon was so, uh, raised in in Kansas uh, yeah. uh, as a as a Christian, and when he met uh, his wife, uh, he did convert to Islam. So this was a one of those a lot of circum so called circumstantial evidence that the government uh, jumped on and uh, and tried to uh, tried to make him the uh, the bad guy or the fall guy, if you will, in this uh, horrific bombing in in Madrid. No. Well, the, the affidavit that the FBI filed with the court in support of Brandon's arrest and searches of his home and law office focused on the fingerprint. But it did go on beyond that to list as other grounds for his uh, arrest and for the searches the fact that he was a Muslim, the mm-hmm. fact that he had been observed attending a mosque, married to an Egyptian woman, yeah. the fact that he had represented a fellow here in Portland in a child custody battle, but the man had been convicted of a terrorism offense. And the affidavit then listed that client's views, not Brandon's views, but his client's views, uh, as part of the probable cause. And and those portions of the affidavit uh, are what gave rise to uh, serious questions about uh, religious profiling. Hence, and hence the, uh, the, the title of the book, certainly Kafka Comes to America, Fighting for Justice in the War on Terror, Public Defender's Inside Account. Uh, we're talking with Stephen T. Wax. And uh, in the searches you were talking about, those were called uh, sneak and peek, peek searches. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Well, there were actually uh, multiple sets of searches. Uh, some were traditional searches based on warrants issued by the federal court here in Oregon. But some were sneak and peek searches, searches authorized under the Patriot Act. And in a sneak and peek search, the government does not have to either give notice that it's coming into your home or leave you any notice that they were there. Sneak and peek. Literally sneak in, look around, and leave. And what happened in this case is that uh, the FBI agents uh, bungled the search, and they left traces of the fact that they'd been there. So when the Mayfields came home uh, one day in, in April 2004, uh, they found a deadbolt had been thrown that they never used. They found their digital clocks blinking. Someone had monkeyed with the electricity. A week later, they found uh, some footprints in a carpet, which uh, Mona Mayfield knew couldn't be there because she had vacuumed. And that created tremendous fear uh, within the Mayfield family. They knew someone had been in the home. They didn't know who. They didn't know why. It turned out that it was our government agents. Now, in these sneak and peeks, what latitude do, do agents have? Can they place uh, surveillance devices inside the home without uh, – what, what, what are the limitations, if any, uh, in one of these sneak and peeks? Well, placing a, a surveillance device did also happen, but that is not part of the sneak and peek search. That is a electronic surveillance authorized by a different portion of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, which was passed back in 1978. So the, the intrusions into the Mayfields' lives included the sneak-and-peak search 
during which they took DNA swabs. They gathered up and photocopied papers. They took mirror images of computer hard drives, things of that nature. And in addition, there was electronic monitoring undertaken both in the home and the law office, telephonically and also on the computers. So, and I mean, what you described uh, for the, as far as the surveillance is concerned, that's a FISA a request. It was was any of that authorized? Was it, none of that was a FISA authorized uh, surveillance? No, it, it was authorized. Okay. Within uh, a, okay. a very short time after the FBI declared the fingerprint match, they went to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance okay. Court. But what's important to understand here is that under the FISA, the government needs to make a far lower, lesser showing than they do in a traditional criminal investigation. So even though what they were doing was investigating a crime, the deaths of three Americans in Madrid, over which our government has jurisdiction, there could have actually been a capital prosecution of Brandon in this country. Mm. So it's an investigation of a crime, but under the provisions of the FISA, they were permitted to do this investigation saying that it was looking into, you know, intelligence uh, for, for intelligence purposes. Mm-hmm. Now, at what point in time did, uh, did they realize they had the wrong person? When did you, you came mm-hmm. into the case. I, I want to have, uh, get established. Okay. When did you come in? To uh, we, we were assigned by the court on uh, Brandon's first appearance, uh, which was May 6th, a uh, little less than two months after the bombings. Now, you need to understand, when, when you ask the question, when did they find out, there's not a simple answer to that. Because on April 13th, the Spanish had sent a letter to the government, to our government, to our FBI, telling them that their fingerprint investigation was negative. The word negative was actually bolded in the letter. No mistake about it, they're saying. Right. Negative. Our government sent a team to Spain to talk with the Spanish after that. And they said, well, at the conclusion of the meeting, the Spanish agreed with us that it you know, was Brandon's print. I personally spoke with the head of the Spanish forensic unit, and I talk about this in the book, and he told me personally, not true. Didn't happen. Yeah. Now, a month later, after Brandon's arrest, the Spanish told the FBI, we have identified this print as belonging to an Algerian. Uh, to their credit, the U.S. attorney here in Portland and the FBI here in Portland immediately moved for Brandon's release, mm-hmm. and the court did release him. Well, while our government was presumably <coughs> lying about the prince, what was Brandon Mayfield doing? Where was he? He was sitting in the county jail. Yeah. Did you have any long talks of, <laughs> with him about his uh, future in the justice system? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we spent uh, a, a lot of time with Brandon. I mean, I, I was assisted on the case by... Uh, senior assistant uh, Chris Schatz, by one of the uh, junior lawyers, Amy Baggio, by a team of investigators. Uh, we spent a lot of time with Brandon. I mean, it was a terribly traumatic experience for him. Arrested in his law office while he has cases pending in the federal court here in Portland and finds himself that afternoon standing before the court in jail blues being told that he might be facing a capital punishment uh, prosecution based on this 100% identification. My goodness. Now, now you've been uh, in the Defender's Office, the Federal Office of Defenders, uh, for quite some time 
prior to this uh, Bush administration, right? Yes. Have you, in your time in as a defender, have you ever seen uh, such a sort of renegade mentality that you see with this administration? Is this, I mean, obviously it was an impetus to write this book, but... It, well, the, the title comes from the procedures that were set up in Guantanamo, which struck me as having been taken straight from one of Kafka's books, The Trial, a system in which people are not permitted to see the evidence against them. They're not even told what the charges against them are. They're not allowed to have any meaningful involvement by lawyers. That was the process set up in Guantanamo. Now, the question about uh, the renegade actions, let me answer you this way. In the Supreme Court decision this past June, in which for the third time they told the Bush administration, no, Mr. President, you do not have the power that you assert. Justice Kennedy, writing for the court, and keep in mind Justice Kennedy was appointed by President Reagan, a person not you know, perceived to be a liberal justice. He took us back all the way to Magna Carta and took us through the English history and how the English reigned in the power of their kings to say that the powers asserted by the Bush administration in these Guantanamo cases are powers that were taken away from the English kings 400 years ago. And he said that in America, under our Constitution, the president does not have the power to act unilaterally the way in which the Bush administration had asserted it could. We're speaking with Stephen T. Wax. The book is Kafka Comes to America. Uh, right before we started the interview, we played uh, a bit of the uh, just the audio from the YouTube that uh, your office has put up, and uh, specifically the letter from uh, Adele Hassan Hamad's wife to President Bush. Uh, can you talk about a little bit about the background on uh, Hamad, how that case came to be? Sure. Adele is a, a, a charity worker, hospital administrator. He had spent. Uh, he was raised in Sudan, got a job uh, with a charity uh, where he was working in uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, helping refugees of what started as the Afghan-Soviet wars and, and became the refugees of the Afghan civil wars. He was arrested literally in his bed in his home in Peshawar, Pakistan, in the summer of 2002. He was uh, held in a Pakistani prison for about six months before he was sent to the Bagram Air Base, where he experienced uh, extreme interrogation techniques, whether or not you want to call it torture, I think. Enhanced interrogation techniques, as I refer to them. Right. Yes. And uh, it it was uh, sufficiently extreme that it put him in the hospital after two weeks. And during that same time period, the winter of 2003, two other men who were in Bagram with him died as a result of these techniques. And it's important to keep in mind that these interrogation techniques were justified through a series of legal memos written in the White House by then White House Counsel Alberto Gonzalez, in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice, and in the Vice President's Office. Memos that are... Colloquially known, colloquially known as the torture memos. John John Wu is another. He is one of the authors of them. Yes, yes. and you know there are real live men and real dead men who are 
people who suffered at, as a result of the policies that were implemented at the top in, in this administration. And, and, and Otto was one of those people. Fortunately, he survived. And he was then taken from Bagram to Guantanamo in March of 2003, where the only allegations against him were that he had worked for these charities, never alleged to have been on a battlefield, never alleged to have been a fighter, never alleged to have done anything directly against the United States or our allies. The only allegation is he worked for these charities and that some of the men in the charities may have done some things with that, that ended up providing some support to al-Qaeda. Not him. Yeah. Hmm. And, and not even that some of the men in the charities did, but may have. All right. Those were the allegations against him. What's, what's so infuriating is uh, we had Jane Mayer on here a few weeks ago, and she, in her book, Dark Side, she talked about, and it's public, it's in, been in the news, that the CIA years ago came to the administration and said that fully a third of the people that were there being detained at Guantanamo are absolutely and clearly not involved in terrorist activity, should not be incarcerated there. And yet those people, met, uh, among them your clients, remain there way for years and years, uh, four, five, six years now. Well, ab- absolutely. I mean, the, the records from the military's own interrogations that have been put out on the Internet, available for anyone to look at, show that fewer than 5% of the men in Guantanamo were actually picked up on a battlefield. Fewer than 10%, 10% are alleged to have been part of al-Qaeda. Yeah. And fewer than 50% were even ever accused of committing any hostile act. That's from the government's own data. Now, fortunately for Adil Hamad, he's now home. We can, were able to conduct investigation. I sent a team of men uh, into uh, the war zones in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I personally went to Sudan. We gathered evidence of his innocence. We presented it to our government, which did not respond favorably. We presented it to the Sudanese government. And after our visits with the Sudanese government, they started intense negotiations to get some of their citizens home from Guantanamo, and Adel Hassan Hamad was the first of the Sudanese to go home. So he was reunited with his family last December. Now, the Sudanese government's running the war in Darfur. What was it like to deal with them? Well, utterly fascinating. I mean, it's just another aspect of, of this whole situation. This that, Kafkaesque uh, experience. This Kafkaesque. <laughs> yeah. For their own geopolitical reasons, uh, I, I assume, they opened their doors to us, and we had lengthy meetings with the Justice Minister, the Justice Minister's Chief Deputy, the State Minister, President Bashir's Foreign Policy Advisor, members of the Parliament, and they received the evidence that we had, and they worked to get their people home. Do they want to put a benign face to the world and say, look, we're not all bad? That may be. My concern is I was able to get my client home. You know, one of the more sickening aspects, by the way, we're speaking with Stephen Wax, the author of Kafka Comes to America, Fighting for Justice in the War on Terror. One of the more sickening things about all this is that people like Bashir, the the military junta in, in Burma, uh, dictators all around the world, uh, Mugabe, can turn around and say to their, their people, 
uh, look what America is doing. Look at the look. They're torturing their people. And under that under that they can fly under the radar uh, and get away with uh, the international scorn that they deserve uh, by their own actions of their own actions. And uh, it, it, it 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 skews the way that we look at these rulers around the world. It gives them an opportunity to uh, for cover, if you will, uh, well, in light of their own heinous actions. I mean, one of the, the most poignant parts of our, our visit to uh, Sudan, yeah. uh, and, and one of the stories that uh, I, I tell in, in the book was a meeting with a person who had been highly placed in the Sudanese government uh, in the 1980s and is now a, a, a national television commentator there. And after spending an hour uh, on his uh, show talking with him afterwards, uh, he said, Precisely that. He said, look, Mr. Wax, you know, if your government, which is supposed to be the beacon of liberty in the world, yeah. is treating the men as it is in Guantanamo, imagine the statement that that gives to other governments. Imagine the license that that gives to other people who are going to be less sensitive to individual liberty than your government should be and is. And that was a very, very difficult uh, point of, of, of the visit there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and it, uh, it, it's, it's unfortunate byproduct of all this, and it, it, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we, as, an, as a society, we move forward and begin to rectify all this. This is just uh, this is madness. What well, it is. after spending four years in Guantanamo, after being tortured, well, what's Adel Hassan Hamad's uh, opinion of the United States. Does he have anything to say about our country? Well, one of the most uh, wonderful aspects of, of, of this is that he still says to me, I want justice. He still believes sufficiently in American values that he wants me to pursue through the habeas litigation his exoneration, because when he was sent home, he was not told, and the world was not told, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. They just sent him home. So the enemy combatant designation remains intact, and we want to have his name cleared. He also uh, wants to pursue civil action uh, for damages against the government for the wrongful imprisonment, and uh, has been in touch with an American civil attorney toward that end. I mean, it's remarkable that this man can still hold a belief in the strength of our values. And, mm. and I, I think that it, it is important when we get angry about what has been happening to keep in mind that there is within this country this tremendous reservoir of good. And it's important to keep in mind that there is something quite unique in this world about the fact that I, as a public defender, a federal employee, and paid by the government to fight it, and paid by the government to go into court on the most critical and fundamental issues of our day to try to achieve justice. And there's no interference. I don't think that that would happen many other places in the world where the government would be sufficiently strong, whatever its weaknesses, to have people such as me and the other federal defenders going in there, fighting it unfettered. 
we need to remember that as we, well. We do, we do, and thank you for the the work that you do and uh, and pass along our uh, support to all the others who you work with. The book is Kafka Comes to America, Fighting for Justice in a War on Terror, a Public Defender's Inside Account. Stephen T. Wax, thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me on. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.